This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hammerich. Today on episode 12 of season two. The concept of it takes a village to raise a child really applies to plant breeding too. It it takes a village to create a new variety. As breeders, we know the genetics, but we rely on plant pathologists, on agronomists, on soil scientists, a whole range of other scientists to help us in the development process. Dr. Rebecca McGee joins the show. Rebecca is a research geneticist, also known as a plant breeder, with the USDA ARS Grain Legume Genetics and Physiology Research Unit located at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington. Her work focuses on developing varieties of spring-sown peas and lentils, as well as autumn-sown peas, lentils, and chickpeas. She's worked for the USDA ARS since 2009, and before that time, she spent 13 years with General Mills as a vegetable pea breeder. In today's episode, we talk about what's being developed in terms of pulse varieties for pest and disease resistance, winter hardiness for fall-sown pulses, and what it takes to bring new varieties to the market. Rebecca says one of the things she loves most about her job is developing varieties that are unique, nutritious for the consumer, and well-suited for the environment that the farmers will be growing them in. And that last part about developing them for farmers includes resistance to pests and diseases, which is where we'll start today's episode. The mission of the ARS is to help America's farmers. And the way that I can do that is to develop varieties that they can reliably grow year in and year out, regardless of what disease and pest issues they face. So we have a significant part of the breeding program dedicated to disease resistance, of course. It depends where in the country a variety is targeted for, what diseases we might be working on. In North America, there are several diseases that seem to be everywhere. Fusarium wilt race one on peas is a good example of that. And so every variety that we release needs to be resistant to Fusarium wilt race one. To help select for that, we have a dedicated Fusarium wilt nursery at our research farm at Pullman. That's a fairly easy disease to develop resistance for. Diseases that are more difficult are some of the other soil-borne pathogens that cause the root rots, primarily the Fusarium species, as well as Aphanomyces. Those are very complex diseases to work with. We're very fortunate that we're in the era that we're in now with the ability to use molecular markers. My predecessors and their predecessors all worked on developing resistance to Aphanomyces root rot in peas. We're just now beginning to release varieties that have high levels of partial resistance. It's taken two and a half generations of careers to get there. So those are some of the most difficult diseases that we have to work with. We are also concerned here in the Pacific Northwest with the aphid-vectored virus diseases, primarily peonation mosaic virus, bean leaf roll virus, and pea seed-borne mosaic virus. We've released varieties in the past five years that have resistance to those virus diseases. And they can, they can really help farmers because if a farmer is growing those varieties, if they have a bad aphid year, they're still going to have to spray, but they might be able to walk back the 
threshold that they use to spray because they're concerned now with the aphids essentially eating the crop as opposed to spreading disease. Eating the crop means sucking the, the phloem out of the plant, not like chewing. We're going to talk more about some of the goals Rebecca is aiming for in the pulse breeding program in just a few minutes here. But I thought starting out with pest and disease resistance would be a good way to better understand the breeding process, especially how complex it can be. Some diseases, like, for instance, powdery mildew, there are three genes that confer resistance to powdery mildew. One of those genes is called ER1, and that's provided very high levels of resistance to powdery mildew for 60 or 70 years. So we only need that one gene, and we have resistance. If I contrast that with a Phanomyces root rot, we know that there are half a dozen or so genes that I need to have in order to confer high levels of partial resistance. And so before we had the ability to look at the genome of the breeding line, we didn't know if we had one of those genes or, or four or three or what combination of genes we had. And so the more genes you work with simultaneously, uh, the more difficult it gets to be able to identify which genes you actually have in the, the breeding lines that you're working with. And in the past 20 years, uh, several research groups, including the ARS, INRA in France, and several other labs have been working really hard to understand the nature of the inheritance of aphanomyces. And so we do have now a pretty good idea of what we need to incorporate into the plants to get the high levels of resistance. It's just more difficult to work with five genes than with one. And to help navigate this complexity, there are some incredible tools, some of which Rebecca just alluded to, that enable plant breeders to speed up the process of developing these new varieties. Well, we're in an era now where genomic and genetic tools are much more affordable and available. And so we're able to realistically develop markers that we can use in our breeding programs to help us select for traits of interest. Markers have been around for decades. Molecular markers have been around for decades, but they haven't been particularly useful for the pulse crops for several reasons, primarily because the genomes are so big. So using, we call them breeder-friendly markers. Once they're developed, they're cheap and easy to use. Commercial labs can use them. So for instance, if you're a breeder with a very, very small budget, you can essentially send leaf tissues into the lab and they'll extract the DNA and run the marker and tell you yes or no, you have the gene you want. Taking it a step further, you could extract the DNA yourself and send that to the lab a little bit cheaper. Or if you have a well-equipped lab of your own, you can do the whole thing yourself. It's fast, it's inexpensive, and it's extremely accurate. Right now, we have breeder-friendly markers for several traits that we use. I think that as we 
work more and more with traits that we're interested in, we'll develop more of these breeder-friendly markers and be able to use them more routinely. Progress in plant breeding is divided by time. And so anything I can do to make my cycles faster, I'm going to make my improvements faster. So if I can use a a breeder-friendly marker and select in the F2 before the plants flower, I can get rid of thousands of plants, make appropriate crosses, and start pyramiding genes much more reliably and, and faster. Now, you may remember episode seven in this season with Dr. Claire Coyne, where we talked about the massive collection of genetic material available for pulses. So how do breeders like Rebecca approach a collection so large and begin the process of creating these new varieties? I guess the biggest thing that you do when you're deciding how to to mine a germplasm collection or mine anything in a breeding perspective, find out what your stakeholders want. What do they need? Now, what are the issues they're faced with? What limits their productivity? What are their big issues? So we're very fortunate. The USDA has been funding the evaluation of their collections for many, many years. And so the pea and the lentil collections are very well characterized. And so if it becomes apparent that the stakeholders need resistance to a new disease, it's relatively easy to go to the germplasm collection and search the collection for accessions that are resistant to the disease, if, of course, it's been evaluated for that disease. The evaluations are done based on stakeholder needs. So the probability that if it's a, an issue with a stakeholder, the probability is pretty high that the collections has been evaluated for that characteristic. The same goes with nutritional factors. If it becomes important that the stakeholders need peas with more protein, the collection has been evaluated for protein concentration in at least the core collection. And so you you find the accession in the collection that meets the criteria that you have, and then you just start using it as a parent in your breeding program. And that, that's a really simplified version of what happens, but just using it as, a, it as a parent is somewhat problematic because a lot of the material in the collection is land races that were perhaps collected in Ethiopia that have absolutely no adaptation to the northern temperate regions. So there's a lot of either pre-breeding that needs to be done to get the characteristic of interest into a relatively elite background before you actually start trying to build a cultivar that has, you know, characteristics that a farmer's going to want. Or you have to do just a tremendous amount of crossing and back crossing to the elite parent. Another big part of Rebecca's breeding program, which I found really fascinating, is developing autumn-sown varieties. We did a great episode on autumn-sown peas in episode 13 of last season, season one. And there's a lot of work being done here on peas, but also on autumn-sown lentils and even chickpeas. To start with the autumn-sown stuff, we really need to start back in about 2009, 
prior to 2009, there were Austrian winter peas. That was the only commonly available pulse crop. There were also a couple of varieties of autumn sown lentils. But really, um, the Austrian winter peas were the primary autumn sown crop that there were. So before 2009, the marketing regulations in the U.S. said that if you plant a pea in the autumn, you can only sell it in the feed market. It cannot go into the food market. Feed peas are worth not very much money compared to food quality peas. And so there wasn't really any impetus to develop a food quality winter pea. So in 2009, the marketing regulations were changed. A lot of people in Washington were very active in getting those changes made. And the food versus feed distinction became not what season the crop was planted in, but what the finished quality of the harvested seed was. So if you could plant in the autumn a really nice, high-quality pea, you could sell it into the food market as opposed to feed. Several of us started working pretty seriously on developing food quality peas in 2009. So the first varieties were released um, in the past year or so. This spring, ARS released three food quality winter peas from my breeding program, two greens and one yellow. There are also a couple of food quality peas that have been released by the ProGene company that's headquartered in Othello, Washington. So the other option for an autumn sown pea is to use it as a cover crop. And so the third part of my winter pea breeding program is breeding for cover crops. The intent for the cover crop is that it will be uh, sown in the autumn and then it'll be terminated probably around full bloom, terminated either mechanically or with uh, an herbicide, and then have a, a cash crop planted after it, or terminated by grazing you know, livestock or wildlife. Those are the three parts of my winter pea breeding program. My winter lentil breeding program includes breeding for three different market classes, uh, medium green, small green, and uh, Spanish brown types. The varieties that will be released from that program are probably three or four years out at the earliest. We have a very small but focused winter chickpea breeding program. The intent of that program is to develop uh, small kabuli type chickpeas, uh, very similar to the kinds that are commonly used in the hummus production. Rebecca says adapting these crops to the harsh winter conditions is no easy task. But as you might expect, it starts with parent varieties that are winter hardy and trying to breed in the food grade characteristics of spring sown varieties. As with any breeding project, you start by evaluating the parents that you want to use in the initial cross. And that's going to be dictated by what you want in the end. So for an autumn-sown pulse crop that's grown in the northern parts of North America where, it's, where we have cold winters, you have to have cold tolerance. And there's just no way around it. It has to have cold tolerance. Making a food quality winter pea or, or making any, any kind of a, a winter pulse crop, usually the cold tolerance comes from something that's not very adapted something that you just couldn't use as a variety, but it's got the cold tolerance genes that you need to survive the winter. 
And so that's going to be one parent. The other parent's going to bring the quality characteristics that you want, and that's probably going to be a spring solon. So you're going to make a spring by winter cross. That's difficult in itself because, you know, the winters flower at a different time than the springs. If you make the cross in the greenhouse, the winter type is going to flower later than the spring type. And so in the greenhouse, you have to plant the winter parent and then plant the spring parent several times so that they nick, so that they flower at the same time and you can actually, you know, physically make the cross. And then you grow the F1, the first generation after the cross. You harvest the F2 seeds, and I like to let nature do the selecting in the F2s. So I plant the F2s in the autumn. The winter will kill a good portion of the F2s that we plant. And the F3 families then that we harvest have some degree of cold tolerance because they survive the winter. I could do that in the greenhouse or in a growth chamber rather also. To do that, what you do is you grow the material in the growth chamber, you acclimate them to cold, and then you give them a cold test. And then you put them in the recovery room. And then after a few days, you evaluate survival. The problem with doing that is that it doesn't really mimic winter. You hit it with a cold test once at one growing stage in its life. But in the wintertime, there's all sorts of cues that the plants are taking from the environment to start hardening, like the quality of the light, the length of the day, things like that. So they'll acclimate to cold. They'll get cold. There might be snow. There might not be snow. And then it might warm up, and so they'll deacclimate. And then it might get cold again, and so they'll have to reacclimate. And so they can go through several cycles of acclimation and deacclimation in a winter that I cannot mimic in a growth chamber. So I like to let nature do the selecting. Um, it's a lot easier for me that way. One interesting aspect to me of the Austrian winter pea quality was trying to make the seeds larger. Rebecca said this is a good example of a quality that's controlled by a single gene versus how most other traits require multiple genes. Well, what we had to do to make them acceptable for food quality was Austrian winter peas are characterized by having uh, small seeds that have a pigmented seed coat. And so we had to make the seeds bigger and have a clear seed coat. So uh, we measure the size of the seed in terms of the weight of 100 seeds. And Austrian winter peas have a 100 seed weight of about 13 or 14 grams. A food quality pea needs to be closer to 18 to 20 grams per 100 seeds. We had to really make the seeds a lot bigger. And we had to get rid of the coloration, the pigmentation on the seed coat. That was relatively easy. That's controlled by a single gene seed size is controlled by many, many genes. So, you know, in breeding, working with a single gene is always easier than trying to manipulate multiple genes simultaneously. I'm going to say almost all of the quality traits are multiple genes. A good proportion of the disease resistance traits are multiple genes. Most of the agronomic traits are multiple genes. There are very few times that I get the simple pleasures of working with single genes. As you can tell, it's no easy task, but there's so much opportunity for plant breeding to increase the value of pulses, not only for producers, but for consumers as well. I think some of the biggest challenges that we face 
our nutritional security as well as food security. The pulse crops are already good for you, but can we make them better for you? Can we increase the concentration of protein? Can we increase the concentrations of some of the mineral nutrients and have them bioavailable? Those are important things, I think, for our future. As an example, lentils are are a good source of folate. In the United States, a lot of the products that we buy that contain wheat have folic acid added to them. And so that's great for us. However, people in third world countries can't afford necessarily to fortify their wheat products with folic acid. And so if we could biofortify the crops, they would be eating lentils that had higher levels of folates and not have to worry about having uh, fortification of their, their foodstuffs. You know, meeting the nutritional security needs of the entire world, but especially the, the poorer countries of the world, I think is something that's very important for us to focus on. Rebecca wanted to be clear that developing the varieties is just one part of the complicated process of getting new varieties to farmers so that they can be grown. It takes a lot to get a new variety to farmers. It takes a lot more than me just making it. There's a learning curve associated with any new variety that that becomes available. How best to grow it? Are there any specific things that it needs or, or doesn't need? Breeders rely on agronomists to help us get that message out. We rely on plant pathologists to help us evaluate and screen materials. It's so complex. And the the easy part of variety development is variety development. And then commercializing and getting it into farmers' hands, that's really hard. And that's mind-bogglingly difficult and complex. The concept of it takes a village to raise a child really applies to plant breeding too. It, It takes a village to create a new variety. As breeders, we know the genetics, but we rely on plant pathologists, on agronomists, on soil scientists, a whole range of other scientists to help us in the development process. Plant breeders don't just do it alone. And if we want to look at some characteristics, like um, some of the nutritional characteristics, for instance, we have to rely on food scientists and plant physiologists to help us understand how are the, for instance, mineral nutrients translocated into the seed, and how can I manipulate that? A plant breeder can't develop a new variety in isolation or all by herself. And on that note that we'll end on of it taking a village to bring varieties to market, it's of the utmost importance to have effective communication from everyone involved, especially when it comes to farmers offering feedback on genetics they're needing. I think the biggest take-home message is we can only do as well as what we know. And so if there's something that a farmer needs or something that a farmer sees that's not right or, or that's good, let us know. They are our stakeholders. They are the people that we do this for. And the more input I can get from the farmers and the growers, I think the better I am at my job. 
Well, huge thank you to Dr. Rebecca McGee for taking time to share on the podcast here today. You can learn more about her work on the USDA ARS website, and we'll leave a link for that in the show notes. This show is brought to you by the Pulse Crops Working Group with support from the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council, as well as the North Central IPM Center and USDA NIFA. We're releasing two of these episodes every month throughout the growing season, and we want to make sure the information is relevant to you. So please tweet us with any feedback or suggestions by using the hashtag growingpulsecrops. And we'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks. Thank you.